Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. All right, so if you turn in your Bibles to Ruth, at the end of chapter 1 and verse 22, as they, were, as they left the land of Moab and they came into Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. And that brings us now to verse 1 where we read, And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Eli Melech. That's a repetition, by the way, because her husband was Eli Melech, so obviously it's a family of Eli Melech, but it's being emphasized to us. Uh, and his name was Boaz. And so up until this point in our history, the acting persons on the stage here have been women. It's been primarily Ruth and Naomi. But now on the stage emerges a man, Boaz. Now God the artist. He's going to paint for us a picture, a portrait of who this man Boaz is. And so he takes the paint, the brush here and he's painting this portrait and we're going to see this is the model of an ideal Israelite man. This is the model of an ideal head of a family. This is a model of an ideal landlord. So with verse 1, we have this introduction of the person who's going to be the deliverer. He's going to be a deliverer. Boaz is going to deliver Ruth and Naomi. And so what our verse tells us, and Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's. Now, this word kinsman here, and I don't want you to misunderstand. This word kinsman is not the usual word for kinsman. You may have heard of the Hebrew word goel for kinsman. That's not the word. That's not the word that's used here. In fact, this is a unique word for kinsman, which is moda or meyeda, meyeda as it is here. And this word literally means an acquaintance. So the word moda emphasizes that we're talking about a distant, a very distant relative. So right away from the word moda, God is emphasizing to us that there is a great distance between Naomi and Boaz as far as being a relative is concerned. You know, Naomi can't, can't go to Boaz and say, oh, I'm your close relative, you gotta take care of me. She can't do that. And so notice in verse 1 how God continues to emphasize the distance between Boaz and Naomi by not only telling us that she's a far quaint, a far relative, but the emphasis here is that he's a kinsman of her husband's. It's not even her relative, but he's a far acquaintance of her husband's. And of course, Eli Melch, that's Naomi's husband, who's not even alive anymore. And again, notice in verse 1 how there is, as I was pointing out here, this repetition again as we're told Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, and we understand that Naomi's husband was Eli Melech, but then again, notice in verse 1, it's repeated with the words of the family of Eli Melech, who's dead. So that repetition is further emphasizing to us that Boaz is not even a relative of Naomi, but a distant relative of her deceased husband. So in verse 1, it's telling us that Boaz is a distant relative of her late husband, Eli Melech. So from verse 1, when we read this thing, what happens to us is we feel this remoteness of Boaz to Naomi. And all this is emphasizing this remoteness, remoteness here of Boaz to Naomi, and it shows us right off the bat that Boaz is an unlikely deliverer. 
He's an unlikely deliverer. That's the whole point of the first part of verse 1 here, that Boaz is not a likely deliverer for Naomi. So we can title verse 1, this introduction here of Boaz, as Boaz the unlikely deliverer. And But even though Boaz was an unlikely deliverer, he was God's chosen deliverer. He was God's chosen deliverer. So the title, Boaz, the unlikely deliverer, that reminds us of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, in fact, just as Boaz was the unlikely deliverer, so Jesus was the unlikely deliverer. See, the unlikeliness of the Lord Jesus Christ as a deliverer, that's described for us in Isaiah 53, 2, where it says, he'll grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. His appearance didn't look like a deliverer. What did he look like? He looked like a tender plant. He looked like a root out of the middle of some dry ground. How does, the, how does that look, a root out of dry ground? He wasn't impressively shapely. It says he has no form. And when people looked at him, they didn't see any outward beauty. So that the testimony is that, well, you know, when we see him, there's just no beauty. We don't desire him. And on the cross, when people saw his face and his form, there's a word uh, that's used to how they felt. And it's given to us in Isaiah 52, 14, where it says, as many as were astonished, astonied. I like astonied better than astonished because astonied sounds more like a stone, you know? I mean, they just were like, they look like, look like a stone. They're astonished at thee. His visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. They were just astonished. They looked like a stone. And they never saw a person's face look like that before. They never saw a person's face so marred, disfigured, so damaged. They never saw that. They were astonished at how disfigured his body was on the cross. No one ever seen a body that was that disfigured before. And as he was there on the cross, he looked so much like an unlikely deliverer. He didn't look like a deliverer. On the cross, he looked like such an unlikely deliverer that, that one of the thieves said, you've got so many problems yourself, take care of your own problems, then take care of us. In Luke 23, 39, one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him saying, if thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. See, the world saw him as an unlikely deliverer. As it says in John 1:10. he was in the world, the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. And even so even though he's in the world, the world's made by him, the world doesn't see their creator, the world doesn't see their deliverer. His own Jewish people, when they saw him, they saw, that's an unlikely deliverer. As it says in the next verse in John 1.11, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. His own Jewish people looked at him and they said, he's an un- he looks like an unlikely deliverer. The Jewish leaders, they saw him as an unlikely deliverer when they said in John 9, 29, we know that God spake unto Moses, but as for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. And when the time came for the Jewish people to choose or reject him, they looked at him and they said, no, that can't be our deliverer. We'll choose Barabbas, a robber, instead. Crucify him in John 18, 40. Then they all cried out again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber. But the point of verse 1 is that even though Boaz was an unlikely deliverer for Naomi, Boaz was God's choice 
for the deliverer. And that's true of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though the Lord Jesus Christ will look like an unlikely deliverer, God chose him to be the deliverer from our sins. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ was given by God as our deliverer, as it says in Acts 4.12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And when we read in the Gospels, there's two words. Whenever we read these two words, of Nazareth, to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. It's emphasizing how unlikely a deliverer he was. And that's what Nathaniel said in John 1.46. Nathaniel said unto him, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip says, you got to come see for yourself. Come and see. Love that. Come and see. Went to a church one time down in the south of France. Just a small little church, kind of behind some buildings. Group of saints. I still remember to this day the pastor standing up there. And it's the way he held his Bible as he preached. He held that like this precious book. It was just so... Anyway, the name of the church was Viennevois. Come and see. That's the name of the church. Come and see. Be nice for our church, right? What's the name of your church? Come and see. <laughs> or when Paul asked God who he was, and then he replied in Acts 22.8, and I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. I am Jesus, the unlikely deliverer. And the unlikeliness of him as a deliverer was emphasized by the sign over his cross, which said in John 19, 19, and Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So the Hebrew words here that we read about Boaz, it says here, he's the unlikely deliverer. But then it says something more about him. He says he's a mighty man of wealth. Really, I don't know why they translate it that way, the mighty man of wealth. They didn't ask me. I wasn't there for them to ask, but anyway. Better, mighty man of valor. It's the same Hebrew phrase that's used of Gideon in Judges 6.12. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Not wealth. And the same Hebrew phrase was used to describe Boaz was also used to describe Jephthah in Judges 11.1. Jephthah the Gileadite, a mighty man of valor. And he was the son of a harlot. The phrase has nothing to do with wealth or property. But anyway, we see his name in verse 1 as Boaz, as as it means, as we've seen, the, the son of strength. The son of strength. It's interesting about Boaz because his mother, Boaz's mother, is told to us who she was in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ, when it says in Matthew 1, 5 through 6, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab. And Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king, and so forth. So Boaz was the son of the harlot, Rahab. Rahab, the harlot, is in God's book, uh, Hall of Fame, Hall of Faith. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11, the Hall of Faith, where it says in Hebrews eleven thirty one, by faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. And James speaks of how Rahab proved her faith when it says in James 2.25, Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she that received the messengers and sent them away another way. See, in each of these cases, she's called Rahab the harlot. See, the eternal word of God is referring to Rahab, is always calling Rahab, Rahab the harlot. Now, if you and I were Rahab, <laughs> we might just say, can we just drop those last two words? You know, can, can we just refer to me as maybe Rahab? Does it always have to be Rahab the harlot? 
you know. To, do, when do I ever get to be referred to as Rahab and not Rahab the harlot? Can I ever get just to that? Well, you know, she's not the only one with these kind of requests. I mean, look at Ruth. She's referred to in our book in Ruth 121, Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, and then Ruth 2.2, and Ruth the Moabitess said unto her. I mean, she's already said, but your people is my people. Why do I have to be, keep on being calling, called Ruth the Moabitess? And Ruth 2.21, Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth 4.5, Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth, Ruth 4.10, Ruth the Moabitess. And so Ruth would say, can we just drop those last two words already? Let's get us old. You know, can I just be Ruth? You know, and how about us? You know, we are sinners saved by grace. And so like Rahab and Ruth, we would say, can we drop the sinners part and just we have to be just the saved by grace? That would be nice. Can't we just be known as saved by grace? Do we have to always be called sinners all the time? Why is Rahab always referred to as Rahab the harlot and Ruth always as Ruth the Moabitess? And we're referred to as sinners saved by grace. Why? For the glory of God. That's why. It shows the grace of God that he saved a harlot and made her through Boaz to be in the line of the Messiah. It shows the grace of God that he saved a Moabitess and made her to be in the line of the Messiah. Anyone says, Rahab the harlot, Ruth the Moabitess, they're shining up the trophies of the grace of God. That's what they're doing. Referred to Rahab as Rahab the harlot and to Ruth as Ruth the Moabitess is referring to what Rahab and Ruth used to be. And that's such an encouragement to us because we say, I've been such a failure in life. I've been such a failure in life. What can God ever do with me? The answer is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, but be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, such a list, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor homosexuals, effeminate, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Rahab was a harlot. Ruth was a Moabitess. But they're washed. They're sanctified. They're justified. And like them, We were sinners, but we're washed, we're sanctified, we're justified. And so God takes these two, son of a harlot, Boaz, Ruth the Moabitess, and he says, I just found my great-grandparents of King David. They're going to be Boaz, the son of the Rahab the harlot, and Ruth the Moabitess. Put them in line as the great-grandparents of David and in the line of the Savior is going to save us sinners. Now, Speaking of referring to Ruth as the Moabitess, we come in Ruth 2.2, where it says, And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn, after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. Now we know that Ruth is a Moabitess. So why here in verse 2 do we have to say it again, emphasize it's Ruth the Moabitess? It's stated here so that we can feel something very real, that Ruth felt as she comes from Moab, the land of Beth, into Bethlehem, as she feels as a foreigner. She's a stranger to the Jewish people. She's an outcast. She's an outsider. She's called Ruth the Moabitess here so that our hearts can go out to her and we can, we can cry inside for the pain that she's feeling. So when we read about what's going to happen here, we can step back and admire the courage of her heart and what she's about to do. God has called her Ruth the Moabitess so we can see that this is Ruth the Moabitess who's going to ask Naomi if she can go and beg for food. And here we see how Naomi is in great need 
No one's come to help her. None of we don't see any of Naomi's relatives that have brought over. You know, look, I brought you some food. I'm, you know, I made a casserole. I'm bringing it over to you. No Jewish people have come to Naomi. No one has come to help Naomi. But now we see Ruth. She's willing to help. This shows the beauty in Ruth. Ruth was not just willing to be with Naomi. Ruth was willing to work for Naomi to bring her food. Ruth was not just willing to pray with Naomi. Ruth was willing to beg for Naomi. And how this must have melted Naomi's heart as Naomi saw in her poverty that she wasn't being maintained by her family, but by the love of her Moabitess daughter-in-law. So let's put ourselves in Ruth's shoes as she says to Naomi, let me now go to the field in verse 2. When Ruth said those words to Naomi, let me now go to the field, Let's see, let's think about what Ruth was not saying. Ruth was not saying to Naomi, let's both of us go to the field. After all, I'm not Jewish. This is your country. Come on, Naomi. If you go to the field with me, I'll go with you to the field. Let's go together to the field. She didn't say that. Ruth was saying, let me now go alone to the field. What Ruth was saying was now, I'm going to go alone. I want, give me permission to go alone to the field. What was she willing to do when she says, let me now go to the field? Ruth was saying, I'm willing to do something very hard, really hard. I'm willing to do something I never had to do in my own country. I'm going to beg in the fields. So Naomi, Ruth says, Naomi, let me now go to the fields. I'm willing to go gather up leftovers in the field in the hot days of the harvest time. So Naomi, let me now go to the field. I'm willing to do a man's work among men, as the only woman in the field. So Naomi, let me now go to the fields. I'm willing to put myself in the dangers of being abused as a foreigner woman, all alone in the field among construction workers. <laughs> That's what she's saying. And I'm willing to go there as an enemy of the Jewish people. So Naomi, let me now go to the field. Naomi, I know it's terrorizing to go into the field of Jewish men as a despised Moabitess and not Jewish, but I'm willing to go without you as my Jewish mother-in-law. So Naomi, let me now go to the field. Shows the courage, the great courage of this woman, Ruth. When we see this great courage there, we stand back, we admire it, and we say, Lord, would you please reward Ruth by giving her a crown of courage? And knowing all these dangers that she faced, as we see Ruth saying, let me now go to the field alone, we see her saying to Naomi, Naomi, I know that I'm saying that I'm willing to go to the field alone, but I'm not really going alone because I know that you will be with me. I know that as I go to the field alone, that you'll be praying for me. I know you're going to do that. We've done it together. By praying for me, you'll be doing something very important. Your prayers are going to make me successful. Naomi, I know that as I go to the field alone, that you will not just be lounging around here, but you'll be praying for me, and I'm going to rely on your prayers. I'm willing to go because I know you'll be praying for me. In the same way our missionaries are saying to us, I'm going alone to the mission field, but through prayer, you're going with me. Through prayer, you're going to enable me on the mission field. So with the prayer backing of her mother-in-law, Ruth was willing to go to the field alone. And notice in verse 2 what Ruth was hoping She said, let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. So Ruth is trusting in God. 
and she and Naomi have been praying to God. They're praying to God to move someone's heart to show her grace. And their prayer was, oh God, cause someone to show grace. And when that someone did show grace, then they thank God. Because Lord, I prayed for that. This shows Ruth's great reliance on prayer. When she said, let me now go. And when we see her great reliance on prayer, we say, we look at this and we admire. We say, oh, this is wonderful. Lord Jesus, would you please reward Ruth by giving her the crown of reliance on prayer? And then in verse two, when Ruth said to Naomi, let me now go, Ruth is putting herself under the authority of Naomi. Ruth didn't have to do that. You know, Ruth could have said, "Uh, Naomi, our situation's a little bleak here, and someone's got to go into the field and beg, so I'm going. And I'll be back, you know, after it gets dark. But Ruth didn't do that. Ruth willingly put herself under Naomi's authority when she said, let me now go. This shows the great submission of Ruth when she submitted to the authority of Naomi and said, let me now go. And when we see this, we say, oh, Lord Jesus, would you please reward Ruth by giving her the crown of submission? See, and then we see in verse two that Ruth was asking to Naomi, let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn, which should be grain. And actually the Hebrew word here, it's, it's translated corn, but it, it really means grain. I mean, it says it's the barley harvest, but anyway, again, the, the translators didn't ask me, so, you know. Anyway, so roots of the glean, and what that word means is left behind. In essence, it means big. And when Ruth asked Naomi, let me now go to the field to glean, she's asking Naomi for permission to beg. She's asking for permission to beg. Naomi now sees Ruth as having given up on everything, And now Ruth is giving up on her right to go to the field, and she's asking Naomi for permission to go. This shows that that Ruth was not only willing to live, but she's willing to beg for her. Great. Let me now go and glean. She's not saying, I'm going to go glean, and no one's going to stop me, and I'm going to make sure that that they respect me as a beggar and that they give me. Because after all, I have rights, even as a beggar. I'm entitled to collect. You know, humility it's not an attitude of entitlement. Humility is a spirit of thankfulness. You know, humility is not Menachem the beggar from Fiddler on the Roof who said, alms for the poor, alms for the poor. And someone comes along and says, here, Menachem, here's one kopeck. And then Menachem says, one kopeck? Last week you gave me two kopecks. And then the giver says, I had a bad week. And Menachem says, so if you had a bad week, why should I suffer? (laughs) So when it came to begging, Ruth didn't say to Naomi, I wasn't brought up to live on crumbs. She accepted the lot that God gave her. She had the same spirit as that Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, 22. That's the spirit of humility that Ruth had. She didn't have the spirit of entitlement. She was thankful for whatever she was allowed to have. And we see the spirit of thankfulness in her. And especially she uses the word grace. Grace in verse 2. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. And we don't deserve to be saved from the wrath of God for our sins. But God saves us by his grace. And we're thankful. And we don't deserve to be cleansed from the filthiness of our sin. But God cleanses us by his grace. And we're thankful. And we don't deserve to be adopted by God to be made his children. But God adopts us by his grace, and we're thankful. And as rebels against God, we don't deserve a home in heaven in God's house. But God has prepared a place for us in in his house by his grace, and we're thankful. 
Which is why Peter said in 1 Peter 5.10, the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. So Ruth knew that as a beggar, what she received would be by grace and she would be thankful. That shows great humility. That's the spirit of humility there of Ruth. And that's why she used the word grace. And when we see that, we say, Lord Jesus, would you please reward Ruth with the crown of humility? Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. Sunday Night Church is back. Join Friendship with God Bible teacher Tom Cantor at the new Friendship with God Fellowship every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Join us early each Sunday at 4.30 p.m. for food and fellowship with Sunday evening services to follow at 5.30 p.m. Watch Tom Cantor and the service on YouTube Live located on the Friendship with God website. Enjoy encouraging teaching from our Bible teacher Tom Cantor in a relaxed and family-friendly atmosphere. Sunday Night Church is back, so join us at the Friendship with God Fellowship every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum at 10946 Woodside Avenue North in Santee, California. For more information, call us at 800-247-3051, 1-800-247-3051, or visit friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org for the Friendship with God Fellowship. 